Baker, and I'll be your host for this episode of Every Tongue Got to Confess. The purpose of this podcast series is to explore the experiences and stories of communities of color by listening to the voices of attendees at the 2019 Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities in Eatonville, Florida. During the 30th annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, I talked with Julian Chambliss, professor of English at Michigan State University, as well as a scholar of the real and imagined city. Have a listen to our conversation. My name is Julian Chambliss, uh, Julian C. Chambliss, I'm professor of English and history at uh, Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. Um, also a member of the Academics Committee uh, for the Zorna Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities and a national planner for the Zorna Hurston Festival. Oh, great. Since you've um, been involved with the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities for uh, a couple of years now, can you tell me how has Zora Fest uh, evolved over time? You know, I think one of the things that um, defines the evolution of the Zora Festival for me is because I've been involved with the academic uh, committee, I've really had a chance to sort of talk with scholars and teachers and uh, community members that are really attracted to academic conversations that happen at the festival. And there's been a real effort to sort of think about how the Zora Festival, which has a sort of historic connection to promoting education, uh, how that message can get out and also how to sort of fine tune that message. Uh, while uh, I've been here, one of the things that we've talked a lot about is connecting with students, right? That connect, you know, the Zora Festival connects a lot with actually high school and junior high students. It's an education day. They often bring students, lots of students actually, to the festival. Um, but there's really emphasis with the, uh, the academic committee with the idea of what does it mean to have uh, college-age students, undergraduates, graduates uh, involved with the festival and think about how someone like Zora Hurston who is really a canonical figure in um, high school. Like, you know, if you're going to go through most curriculums in most most states, you're going to read Zora Hurston. But, you know, of course, you know, to me, that's really a kind of like a simplification because Hurston is an interdisciplinary scholar, I often say, and um, really the sort of like root of that, that scholarship is of her experience of growing up in, in the people of Edenville, right? So like there's an Edenville story, which is connected to a whole sort of like post-Reconstruction American South story. And then there's a kind of black identity and black citizenship that's sort of formulated by a kind of freedom ideology that sort of creates the town. And she comes up in that, and that turns her into uh, a figure in the Harlem Renaissance who's very particular in her way of thinking about what what African Americans should be striving for in this in this period of a sort of like black cultural renaissance, right? Until like she becomes like a singular voice. And so a lot of these issues I think are, are tied up in the festival, but they're sometimes buried in what is by any stretch of the imagination of a fairly large public event. 
and and so like one of the things really interesting is like yeah there's been a real effort to like hone in on that and and, and some of the podcast is you know this the podcast was like yeah we can do this and that would be a way to, to to do that but it's not the only thing by any stretch of the imagination like there's the academic poster sessions that dr scott french has been really sort of like a key in um and and other things too great I wonder, uh, you know, we've been working on this podcast, Every Tongue Got to Confess, for a couple years now. I've been working on it for about three years now, and you went four or five? Four. Yeah. yeah. And yesterday you spoke at ZoraFest about how you can use podcasting effectively. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Right. So I was um, here as part, I'm part of the reason I'm here, uh, I was here yesterday, I mean, my already long-standing relationship, but uh, Michelle Robinson, who's a professor at Spelman College, um, has a grant um, that is focused on HBCUs and Historic Black Towns and Settlement Alliance, and it's the HBCU Summit, and you have faculty and students from Historic Black Towns, from Historic Black Colleges and Universities, who are... Um, associated with particular historic black towns and they're going to be working on a community-based research project and she asked me to talk about digital humanities and as a digital humanist i do think a lot about dh as a way to explore black spaces and in particular when i formerly worked at Rollins college which is very close to here a place that you know Zoya hurston worked at you know in the 1930s and we did a lot of work that was focused on digital humanities in my classes. Like I taught an intro digital history class. I taught, we did digital projects with students, including like making podcasts and mapping projects and oral history things, things like that. And so part of that, that work is really inspired by like a sort of literature within digital humanities that sort of focuses on the intersection of black studies and, and digital humanities. And so my talk was called The Value of Black Digital Humanities. And I was in particular, you know, sort of talking about the, the theories and frameworks associated with that body of literature and its sort of evolution over the last like 15 years, but in particular, this sort of rapid acceleration uh, in the last decade around the idea of like digital humanities, uh, sort of like black studies and sort of like a black DH narrative about how digital humanities project can be used as a tool to explore blackness in a particular way. And like, you know, and this is inflected by things like Afrofuturism, which puts a lot of emphasis on blackness as a field, uh, as a field that's constructed, but black people can hack, right? Because race is made up and it's part of a sort of like colonial ideology. And so if that colonial ideology is designed as it was to sort of like create control for white supremacy, that field of knowledge is open to manipulation. And a lot of Afrofuturists will talk about hacking blackness uh, in different ways. And in fact, African-Americans continually hack blackness. That Blackness is a science that uh, African-Americans continually innovated within, despite the sort of like pressure associated with racism. And so, um, one of the things that I, I, I did all those things and really sort of like pointed to projects that might be models for the, how the students might approach thinking about knowledge creation in the context of these community-based works that are going to focus on historic black towns. And, and so it was an opportunity to sort of like create a framework for students who are going to be 
taking the next academic year in different classes around the American South to document their communities and, and create digital projects. And they have a project called a, a historical atlas that they'll be creating but you know there's a lot of different information that will be in that atlas right so there's different modes that they can use to approach it and podcasting as i, I pointed out to them and as we well know is a, a, a accessible digital project um because everyone's got a not everyone but smartphones are prevalent and um, editing software uh, for smartphones and, and the ability to sort of like edit on the fly, um, add, you know, transitions. There are apps out there. Uh, and so, you know, you, we rightly point out that you can, you know, have a phone, have a research question and start talking to people and edit it up and, and make a podcast um, that, that, that tells a story and, and reveals information and, and helps, you know, create a contact. So that was that was the goal of the, the talk. So, um what do you think is the story that we're telling about Zora Fest? The story we're telling about Zora Festival, it's really a story about how thought and the black imagination, I think, are sort of connected to Zora Hurston and but that connection is actually connected to the place and the place is really sort of connected to the black experience, right? So um this idea of a, a, a popular imagination, like a popular black imagination, really a popular imagination, but then like this also like the counter is like a popular black imagination. It's really important because like it's in that space that like action is, is formulated. And so um, when you think about this, like, you know, how do African-Americans change the, the narrative around how society operates? It often takes place in, in the space of the popular imagination, right? So you know, I often talk about like a black imagination as uh, offering a counter narrative to the established imagination, right? So like, so, you know, because of the nature of power, black imagination is a space that cannot be policed and their ideas can flourish and those ideas spill out into the wider imagination and then action and possibilities were like formulated from that, from that sort of like intrusion, that transgression. And so, I think there's a part of the Zoya Hershey Festival that is about a sort of black imagination that gets mobilized, gets crystallized, gets manifest in, in, in a space where like, it, you know, you get nurtured. Uh, and I think that's part of the appeal of the Zoya Hershey Festival because people come to it uh, and come many years, right? They'll come over and over again and they'll bring their kids, they'll bring their grandkids. And their description of it isn't, it's not that it's, they're coming because it's an outdoor fair. It's like they get to see things that spark their imagination that they can't see any place else. And that really, they don't necessarily articulate that way, but over time I've thought like you, that's what it is. It's an opportunity to sort of like engage in a kind of black imaginary that you, you don't necessarily see any other place. Which I think, you know, with 30 years, the, the complexity of that is, is really important if you think about it as a, you know, a cultural conversation, right? It's a conversation that's been going on for 30 years. And for the people who've been consistent with it, uh, it's a conversation that's, you know, probably been transformative in a lot of ways. And I think that conversation is sort of 
the big umbrella and Zoe Narson is is usually the thing people use to find a conversation. But I don't necessarily think that's just Hurston. It's it's also like Eatonville and what Eaton how how Eatonville is what sort of expressed through Hurston, which I think is actually a really complicated conversation. Actually, what is the educational legacy of Zora Fest in your opinion? I mean, I think the the legacy is that sort of constant engagement with the idea of black culture in a kind of positive way, right? Which, you know, it, at some level, you, whenever you come to the Zora Festival, at some some level you get a conversation, a narrative on how, like, you know, black people are okay, like blackness is okay, um, which is a really broad statement and people will, will either directly say it or indirectly say it. And it means different things to different generations of people, right? Like the one thing about the Zora Festival is tend to be intergenerational because uh, there's usually really older people who've been here many times and then relatively young people who haven't been here that many times. But they're both here, right? So like the, the blackness is okay part is like they're talking about blackness as like a ongoing cultural construct, which means that a really old person who says blackness is okay is referencing a set of like critiques and arguments against blackness that are not exactly the same arguments that a young person is saying blackness is okay. Which often comes up when you're in, in well, I think you're in a space like this because like people, the generations have the same goal, but they're reacting to like the sort of like attack represented by racism in, in a different way. And like, to me, that's a really interesting thing because at some level, where do you get a conversation between many generations of black people around blackness, right? And that's and that and I think that that is interesting, right? There is a conversation around blackness. There's a conversation around um, identity and community. There's a conversation around enterprise, right? Because of course, all these towns, these sort of like freedom towns, they they have a kind of enterprise element to them. And that's part of the reason they were defined. I thought that was a really interesting thing that, that came through in a, in a talk earlier today at the festival by Everett Fly. Because this typology that he has about black settlements is not a typology that we don't necessarily understand. It's just often when we describe space, we don't necessarily describe space as singularly defined by a particular activity, right? Like not the entire community. We often don't talk about Chicago as a resort town, right? Like, you know, even though people go there to vacation, right? That's not how we talk about communities. But these communities are, are tiny and they are coming out of a, a kind of question of how citizenship is being defined. And I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that if you think about some of the scholarship that's come out about the American South in the last uh, 10 years, uh, I think about uh, my colleague Robert Castanello, who's written a lot about like Jacksonville and Florida history. You know, one of the things that um, one of the points he makes there is that public space is the thing that's being contested, and in that space is where citizenship is enacted, right? So citizenship isn't it's just, it's simply like a legal act; it's also like a spatial act, and so. And, and I think that this is one of the things around Booker T. Washington's ideology that is meaningful in, in terms of thinking about a place like Eatonville, right? Which 
many of these black towns have a strong connection to Washington and his vocational approach because his vocational approach emphasized, you know, creating sort of like sustainable agrarian communities where people can be educated, have a trade. But that, that space, like that, that space is really sort of connected to a, a kind of evolution of the idea of what citizenship, what an effective citizenship looks like for African-Americans going out of slavery, which he talks about in uh, Working with the Hands, which is like one of his follow-up books from slavery. And so like this idea of space where you can exercise citizenship and have property are really important to African Americans, not because like they're unaware of the ideological construct around citizenship, but because like activating citizenship really comes down to like, can I do these things that will allow for me to have a life that rec- you know sort of recognizes my humanity, recognizes my desires, recognizes my my culture, and so on and so forth. And so I think that's really interesting because we we don't necessarily always talk about like that kind of typology as like a, a signifier of like a particular kind of citizenship, right? Like so because citizenship in the United States writ large is a question of like ideology, right? Like there are many different people in the United States. What holds it together is ideology, which is part of the reason why people are so upset right now, because ideological critiques are so charged, right? So it's it's interesting to think about like you know what kinds of conversations around black agency and black culture and, and, and black conceptions of space are, are sort of like shaping our understanding of um, sort of Hurston in particular for me. So it's, yeah, it, it's interesting conversation. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you for your work on this podcast. It's been wonderful working with you these last couple of years and it's great to see you in person. Oh yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Every Tongue Got to Confess podcast the official podcast of the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Julian Chambliss and I produced this podcast with assistance from the University of Central Florida, the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community, and Michigan State University. Be sure to find the rest of the episodes by searching for us online and subscribing to the podcast. (laughs) 